Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk again to Sheikh Abu Amina Ilyas. You're most welcome, sir. Salam alaikum. Thank you for having me. Welcome, salam. Um, for those who don't know, uh, Abu Amina Ilyas is currently research librarian for Middle East Studies at New York University in Abu Dhabi and research fellow for the Akin Institute for Islamic Research. And he embraced Islam in 2004 at the age of 20. He studied Islam from a traditional perspective with local scholars and imams. <coughs> He's the author of the recently published article entitled The False Promise of Identitarianism, which looks at how certain postmodernist ideas have influenced some Muslim scholars and leaders, especially in the West. And it's published on uh, the Muslim Matters website, and I'll link to it in the description below. So would you like to introduce us to the main themes of your paper? Uh, yes. <clears throat> okay. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wassalatu wassalamu ala Muhammadin wa ala ahlihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. I always begin by uh, with the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and praising him and sending peace and blessings upon his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. <clears throat> I ask Allah to guide me in our discussion because um, it's a difficult topic, and I was not—I um, <clears throat> was not very eager to write about it. But I was asked to do so by uh, some of my colleagues, and that's what um, uh, was the origin of the essay and why I wrote it. Um, and basically, um, to summarize the themes of the the essay and what we will go into more detail today um, is uh, understanding the ideological basis of left-wing extremism in particular in the United States, but it's a global phenomenon at this point and how it contradicts our um, Islamic beliefs, um, why it's a big problem. It's having influence on our young people um, and all of the various flaws that we can see in regards to it, um, uh, the fact that it has a bad relationship with uh, the truth, um, that it's a form of tribalism, um, that it is, is worldliness, uh, it is based on the pursuit of power and not the pursuit of truth. Um, it's causing divisions within families, it's causing divisions within generations. It's causing the younger generations to disrespect the older generations. Um, and it has always alarmed me. And I have always, and we had discussed this among myself and my various colleagues at different places. Um, but it really is, um, we can't really ignore it anymore, I don't believe. And um, it's, uh, it's having such an influence on people that, it's, I feel like it's threatening our theology that mm -hmm. uh, there are Muslims who are trying to inject um, foreign non-Islamic ideas into the Islamic tradition that are divisive, that are harmful. Um, and I felt like I had to speak about that. <clears throat> and I didn't really want to because this isn't something that I usually speak upon. It's something that I observe in society and I'm concerned with and that I have read relevant literature upon and viewed debates upon. Um, 
but you know, usually I would just talk about theology and I wouldn't talk about politics. I would talk about psychology and spirituality and these things are mm-hmm. what I would like to research and talk about most. Yeah. Um, but I felt compelled to talk about this topic. So that was the, that was the summary of the essay. And, um, you know, I didn't want to write it, but I felt like I had to. Well, and, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm glad you did. I, I've read the essay. I'll link to it in the description below. I think it's definitely uh, worth reading and I encourage people to look at it. It's not very long. I think it's uh, readily understandable and quite punchy in parts. It, it doesn't, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, you're not uh, hiding your, your views. Uh, which is fine. Um, but I'd just like to ask before we go any further, because we're using terms like identitarianism and postmodernism and so on. But just as a kind of the antecedent ideology behind identitarianism, which you've yet, you've yet to define, what is postmodernism? Because that's been around for quite a while now, hasn't it? It's not just a recent phenomena affecting social media. We're, we're going back decades here, aren't we, I think? Right. Um, so let's talk about postmodernism. So, well, let me set, let me uh, explain why I use the term postmodern identitarianism, identitarianism, because that's not a common uh, way to analyze this phenomenon that we're talking about. Mm. Um, I use postmodernism because the effect, the influence of postmodern philosophy, which we will discuss shortly, um, is the influence on this political movement is obvious, and I use identitarianism because of the way that this ideology. Um, constructs discourse in order to divide people by identity groups and then to set them against each other. And that is used as a means for politicians to get power and it's used by activists for their, for their agendas and so on. Um, and the, the, the challenge of, of confronting this political movement is that they don't have an a label that they attach to themselves. Mm. Okay. So they will call themselves Democrats, but not all the Democrats are on board with them. They will call them, they might call themselves progressives, but progressivism is a different idea. They, they might call themselves liberals, but it, it's definitely not liberalism where I'm not talking about liberalism today, and especially not in the classical sense of all the freedom of speech and all of those things. You know, this is a movement that uh, it has been in the shadows and only has recently uh, come, uh, has appeared in very public ways. And um, they have been obscure in academia. And um, we're gonna talk about all the terms that we can use to identify them, but this was the term that I wanted to use because I feel that they need to be labeled and they won't label themselves, right? They will call themselves Democrats or liberals or whatever, but those aren't accurate labels. Those are, those are labels that they hide behind. We want to understand what are their ideas and what makes their ideas distinct from the Democratic Party and make their ideas distinct from liberalism. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Or progressivism or all of these other groups that they are uh, allied with and, and, and mixed with. So that's the reason why I chose those terms, right? 
And as Muslims, uh, we, we have labeled sex in ways that they haven't labeled themselves, right? Because they didn't label themselves and we have to label that idea in order to distinguish it from our beliefs. Right. So this is a label I, that I chose and it may not necessarily stick and it may not be the best one. Um, and I'll, well, I'll explain a little bit more about why I, I chose that term. Uh, but that was my rationale for the whole, uh, for the title of the article, basically. So modernism or postmodernism, I'm sorry. Right. So we need to define postmodernism. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read from my notes. Mm. I'm going to read from scholarly reference sources, in particular the Encyclopedia Britannica, and they have two articles that I'm going to be citing. Uh, these are scholarly peer-reviewed articles. They're open source articles, so you can get them on Google. They're easy to understand. They're concise summaries of the scholarship that I'm going to be reading from directly so that people know that I'm not making this up. I'm not uh, taking this from a white right-wing provocateur on Twitter or wherever. This is from the scholarly sources. Yeah. Okay. So let's just, uh, yeah. So let's define postmodernism from this encyclopedia article. <clears throat> the authors write, quote, Postmodernism in Western philosophy is a late 20th century movement characterized by broad skepticism, subjectivism, or relativism, a general suspicion of reason, and an acute sensitivity to the role of ideology in asserting and maintaining political and economic power. Okay, hmm. so that's the definition of postmodernism. Okay. And postmodernism was a reaction to basically the Western men enlightenment values. So you had the modernist movement and everything was supposed to be scientific and rational. Um, and despite that scientific and, and rational basis that people imagined that the society was moving towards, uh, there were still obvious injustices in the, in, the, in the society. There were still obvious problems. And uh, for whatever reason, this movement of philosophy developed. And I'm not saying that I'm an expert on this philosophy and all of its thinkers, because they have a lot of different thinkers that even disagree amongst themselves. It's a broad trend. Okay, but they are united mostly in uh, uh, skepticism, right? So they're, they're, not, they're skeptical of truth claims, uh, subjectivism, so they don't believe uh, in objective reality. They don't believe there's an objective truth and relativism. So they don't believe that uh, moral values can, for example, can be absolute, that morals are relative and, and so on. Uh, they have a suspicion of reason. So they're suspicious of the scientific method when it's properly applied. Um, and they are concerned with ideology, with political power, basically. So, so this was the, the, the postmodern philosophical movement. Okay. And it merged with another movement that we will discuss after this, that is called critical theory, which is an, an academic movement. Um, and they, they kind of draw off of each other to create these um, academics and activists who are out there and, 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 and harming a lot of people with their ideas um, in society. Um, so what are the problems, the main problems with uh, postmodernism? The first is that postmodernism is irrational. It is an anti-rational 
philosophy. Okay. And that's, that is opposed to how we are supposed to be as Muslims. Cause we, as Muslims are supposed to be rational evidence-based people and postmodernists believe that rational and evidence-based claims and truth-based claims are functions of power and not natural or objective truth or reality. No, because because the Quran the Quran doesn't the Quran exhorts humankind to uh, have you not thought you know to use their reason to actually reflect and if you if you if you rob us of that <clears throat> then you are taking away uh, our God given faculties to an intelligently understand reality well, it's very subversive of uh, mm-hmm. us in that sense. Yes, absolutely, and that's that that makes it very problematic. And I'm going to quote again from the Encyclopedia Britannica, just so that you, uh, everyone is clear that postmodernism is, quote, the rejection of an objective natural reality, which is sometimes expressed by saying that there is no such thing as truth, end uh, quote. But, but I love that quote, by the way, because this, this is, you know, philosophy 101. In making that statement, mm-hmm. they are making an objective truth claim. <laughs> it, 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 yeah. it is, it's, it's self-refuting. To say there's no such thing as objective truth is to make objective truth claim. There's no absolute truth is a, tr- a claim to absolute truth. If you're making a statement about metaphysics and ethics and morality in general. So it's a, it's a very naive statement that actually refutes itself, I would argue. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's, a, it's self-contradictory. It's confused. And, um, and you'll see that a lot of people who have been influenced by this philosophy, and they don't even know that, that, that they're they're being influenced by postmodernism. Their ideas are very confused and they're not grounded and uh, their, their ideas are unstable and there's no limits to the logic where their, where their minds are going to go. Cause you know, in Islam, we have the limits that Allah kind of without a place upon us, but they don't have any limits because they're constantly breaking boundaries because there's no such thing as the truth. And there's no such thing as, as moral objectivity or anything like that. Mm. Um, so that epistemology, that epistemology, which is the theory of knowledge, that's the academic term for the theory of knowledge, that epistemology uh, is false, right? Um, and, and, as we believe as Muslims and as Christians and even liberal philosophers and even atheists, natural, atheist naturalists also disagree with that. Yes. Because they at least, at least believe there's a nature, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's interesting. You'll find some of the uh, the atheists, some of the some of the big name atheists, are pushing back against yes. uh, this kind of identitarian extremism. Um, another point is that uh, from the encyclopedia again is that postmodernists quote insist that all or nearly all aspects of human psychology are completely socially determined. End quote. Mm. So basically they are downplaying the, um, the role of free will in human choices and that you are basically a product of your society. And, uh, you know, if you are born into a certain identity group or a certain class in society, then you can't help but behave a certain way and that you don't really have very much uh, will over your own choices. And in this way, they actually resemble a sect from Islam that we discussed last time I was on your show, uh, called the Jabriya, mm. uh, the people who believe that um, Allah compels us to do our deeds, and we don't, and we don't have free will, yeah. right? And so, postmodernists have a very dim view of free will, and they believe that um, you know society basically produces individuals. Individuals don't really have a free will; they're the they're the you know the function of group identity. Um, <clears throat> 
And uh, this again is really uh, problematic because as human beings, we are individuals and we might belong to groups, but we, we are individuals within that group. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala judges us as individuals. We have individual hearts and minds. We have our own thoughts. We have our own actions. And that's what Allah judges us upon, right? And, and things might be more difficult for us to act when we're in a certain society or in certain social circumstances and things like that. I'm not denying that society has an effect on people's behavior, but it's not uh, the most important or it, it, it's not uh, all, an all governing principle of human behavior. You know, you are not necessarily the product of your upbringing. You can over you can have a bad upbringing and overcome that and become a great person. Right. And despite the odds that were stacked against you from the beginning. Right. Yeah. So they have a dim view of free will. That's a problem. Um, Postmodernists do not believe, quote, again, language refers to and represents a reality outside itself. So this is another serious problem. And you'll see this uh, in, in the politics all over the place, the way language is being manipulated. Because postmodernists do not believe that language uh, accurately represents reality because they don't believe there's a reality. You know, they believe that language is all of it is a social construct. It doesn't necessarily represent something that's true outside of us. And so they have no problems redefining words, creating euphemisms, you know, creating coded language, um, using these types of games and, and, and putting that in their propaganda. Um, to fool people into supporting their agenda who wouldn't otherwise support it, right? And I feel like a lot of Muslim, Muslims have, American Muslims specifically, have fell into that trap because they talk about social justice and you know, everyone wants to have the same rights. And those are all things that we agree upon in principle, uh, but they're understanding those things that in ways that have been redefined by postmodernists and have been employed in the public space, but they haven't told you that they've redefined these things or that when they say social justice, they're referring to a specific set of political goals that they're not actually telling you up front what it is. People hear social justice and they think, I am for social justice. You are, I am. We want everyone to be treated fairly, right? But when they say social justice, they have in, in their minds a specific type of society uh, that's not based on natural law, that's definitely not based on belief in God or any religion, right? And they, have, they have a society that I think you and I and a lot of people wouldn't want to live in if we knew this is what they were working for. Yeah, and, and, so, and some right? of the things they advocate for in the name of social justice, like unrestricted abortion up to birth, or even partial yes. birth abortion in America, are, are deeply sinful, according to all religious traditions. Um, and they're not questions of social justice at all. These, these, these can become crimes later on in pregnancy. Obviously, when you're killing, uh, it's called murder in the Islamic tradition in, in the later stages of pregnancy. So these are not neutral, universal kind of understandings of justice. They're heavily loaded from a very left wing kind of secular feminist perspective. Right. And, and you'll understand the confusion because of the way they employ language. And if you understand the postmodern uh, approach, to the philosophy of language, the, that they, they are manipulating the discourse in ways that are getting people to support their agenda who would not otherwise support it if they knew exactly what they were talking about. Um, <clears throat> so that's the point about language. Um, postmodernists are anti-science. That's another big point. 
and I'm talking about the scientific method as properly uh, deployed by society and scientists and academics, that is an experiment and a repetition, right? You experiment, you get results, and other people repeat your results and scrutinize them. And you do that over and over and over, and the the process refines itself until you can get a a pretty close approximation of a true model of, of, of some phenomena in nature, right? That's science, right? Uh, the postmodernists believe that science in being a truth claim was only a means to oppress people, right? And so it is anti-science. And I'm again quoting from the encyclopedia that postmodernists do not believe, quote, a foundation of certainty on which to build the edifice of empirical, including scientific knowledge, right? So, um, you know, this is also very dangerous for society because we're living in a time where technology technology is d- advancing rapidly, and we're dealing with challenges. And we need we need we need to apply the scientific method to solve many of these problems, and to open it up to academic freedom, where scientists are free to criticize each other and to scrutinize their results. And um, you know, there are many things that have led to the corruption of science. Uh, the money aspect is one part of it. And the other aspect is because um, these sort of the soft sciences, which are like social science and psychology, and even some of the medical sciences, they have been influenced by postmodernism um, in, in the way that they approach language and things like that. And, um, and so they're not actually practicing scientists, even though they have a science degree, they're not practicing the scientific method. So if they're upset that somebody is scrutinizing their results, their scientific results, then they're not scientists, right? Because scientists should be happy that other people are double checking their work because scientists in theory should be trying to find the the objective natural truth that we all agree on. And that has to be the basis of our understanding of the world, right? So, but postmodernists don't believe any of that. And so when postmodernists talk about following the science and they talk about, you know, they're scientific and everything like that. They're not actually talking about the process of science. They're talking about the credentialed aspects of science. So these are people who've gone through and gotten degrees and are able to maintain academic jobs and therefore have authority to speak as if they were priests of a church. Right. And I mean, they don't have religion because they're, they're all functionally atheists because this was another point I was going to make that, um, if you don't believe there is an objective natural truth and you're denying the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that he is al-haq, he is al-haq, the truth, right? Allah is the truth. And the truth is one, whether that's religious truth or natural truth, scientific truth, moral truth, personal truth, all of these are the same aspects of the one truth, which is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when the postmodernists deny that there's an objective reality, they are denying this name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so that's functionally atheism and that, and, 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 and they are functionally atheists, even if they go to church or even if they follow a, a religion or they claim to believe in God or something like that. Um, if you don't believe that the, the, the truth is one and that Allah is one and that he is the truth, then, then you're an atheist, right? So these postmodernists are functionally atheists. Um, that was another point I wanted to make. Um, the last point um, that I'll say about postmodernism, and again, this is a direct quote from uh, the encyclopedia, quote, and I think this is just a summary of everything we talked about, just so you, everybody is clear what we're talking about. 
quote, postmodernists deny that there are aspects of reality that are objective, that there are statements about reality that are objectively true or false, that it is possible to have knowledge of such statements, i.e. objective knowledge, that it is possible for human beings to know some things with certainty, and that there are objective or absolute moral values, right? So not only do they deny that there's a truth in their reality, they, they deny that there are absolute moral values. And so you can see uh, if somebody actually believes this, they can start to rationalize all kinds of atrocities in their mind, right? They, they can rationalize eugenics. They can rationalize um, uh, you know, killing old people because they're, they're a waste on society and, and killing autistic children, you know, and aborting, aborting fetuses that are eight months to term. And babies, not even aborting fetuses, aborting babies that are that yeah. are almost the term, right? And that which is what they've said that they want to do, right? And which we believe is is killing in our religion. All scholars agree on that, right? So you can see how this uh, philosophy uh, is militant against religion in general, and therefore it is a threat to our religion. And um, because this philosophy animates a lot of academics who then animate the activists, who then pressure the politicians, um, and then the corporations get involved, and all of the, and, and the Hollywood gets involved. And then you have all of these groups that are putting the pressure on society to accept these values, that there are no absolute truths, and, and there are no absolute moral values. They won't come out and just say that exactly, but if you understand, that's the basis of their action, right? Um, you can see that that is a threat to us as a, as a group, right? And, and you will see that because ever since this group, the identitarians, what I'm calling the identitarians, the postmodern identitarians, ever since you've seen them come to prominence within the last decade or so in the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party has been uh, less interested in religious freedom and has been even uh, openly hostile to it at times. And again, that's a threat to our rights, right? I mean, it's not even a matter of us like wanting to share our religion. They, they don't even want us to practice our religion, right? They think our religion is, is, a, is a tool of oppression, right? And Christianity and so on, right? Or any, any type of truth claim is an act of oppression, right? So that is postmodernism. And then there is the next big piece of this that we need to discuss, and that is called critical theory. Yeah. You ready for that? Yep, I'm ready for that. Yep. Okay, good. <clears throat> and again, I'm going right to the Encyclopedia Britannica. Again, this is an article that you can get on Google, scholarly reviewed, reference source. And they define critical. So again, let me let me back up and introduce. So postmodernism is the philosophical aspect of it. Right. Okay. The academic and the ideological aspect of it. Um the uh, sort of the vision of what they want society to be is informed by an academic dis discipline that is called critical theory. Right. And critical theory um, uh, arose in about the 1930s and 40s, um, according to the Frankfurt School. That was the Frankfurt School. And they were a, a group of Marxists who came to the United States and then developed their ideas and had to explain why Marxism failed uh, and, and, uh, um, and then 
decided to apply Marxist analysis to social and cultural problems in America, right? Because why didn't America go communist? Because the whole world was supposed to go communist. So the Marxists had to explain that. And then so they turned their analysis to society and culture as opposed to economics. Um, so I'll again um, define critical theory according to the encyclopedia. It is, quote, a Marxist-inspired movement in social and political philosophy originally associated with the work of the Frankfurt School, as I mentioned, end quote, right? So who are they, can we just mention a few of the big names of the Frankfurt uh, School, um, uh, particularly those that ended up in the States? Was it, was it Herbert Marcuse who was? That's of- the big one that I know off the top of my head. And I would notice the others if I read them, but off the top of my head, I can't remember. Okay. Uh, but the, 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 this is, you can Google this and, you know, yeah. there's a lot of information a, on a, it. A very celebrated book called One Dimensional Man, which uh, uh, looked at uh, capitalism in, in the States, the way it kind of reduced the human, the human being to a kind of commodity consumer and so on. So <clears throat> much in that that was arguably insightful but but also this is the the, the whole movement you mentioned uh is off, also called by some people cultural marxism which is definitely a, a term of the right um but mm-hmm. it doesn't mean it's any less valid uh, it could be valid anyway wherever it comes from um yeah. so so this critical theory is also known as uh cultural marxism in the west yeah it has been called that and it was even called that decades ago by the people who were practicing it. Um, but, you know, it uh, far-right re- extremists were rallying around against that, and some of them committed shootings and mentioned cultural Marxism in their manifestos, so it's not something I'm very comfortable using because um, I don't, I, you know, I'm not on their side. And um, uh, so just be aware of that. Um, and and, and it, even in academia, though, um, I think it's more common to refer to it as critical theory, but it is Marxism as applied to culture. Yes. Yes. Uh, Yes. So we've established the fact that critical theory is a Marxist movement. And um, what is Marxist about it as applied to society and culture? Well, in classical Marxism, you had this binary of the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. The proletariat was the lower economic class, the working class. The bourgeoisie was the higher economic class and the ownership class. And there was obviously exploitation and injustices, and nobody, I think, can deny that that was a fact, and Marx was re- uh, responding to those facts. Um, but his theory uh, basically locked these two groups in an eternal, well, not an eternal struggle, but in, in a zero-sum game, that the proletariat had to crush the bourgeoisie, had to seize their private property, and then had to, you know, had to have the bureaucracy distribute it fairly across everybody in, in, in the society. And we were, they were all comrades and everything like that. And so it was a very utopian ideology. Um, and it was viewed as a remedy to the excesses of capitalism. And, and there's a lot that Marxists have wrote that are critiques of capitalism that are valid. Uh, but this binary idea where they're locking two groups of people in a zero-sum struggle where one has to defeat and crush the other, that is, I believe, the most dangerous part of any type of Marxist analysis, any type of Marxist ideology or inspiration. And Marxism is extremely dangerous to society, 
and I think to the world and um, Marxist governments have killed more people than the fascist governments. If you're just talking, talking about the raw body counts, if you think about the Stalin uh, regime that just killed millions of people, uh, even more than the Nazi regime. Um, you know, this is what happens when human beings are demonized within a Marxist paradigm. Okay. Because Stalin was able to get away with killing millions of people because he, he was able to show that these bourgeoisie were evil. They were bad. They had to be cleansed, you know, and then he, and then they also believed they had this utopian new vision that they were going to produce this great society that was going to bring peace and justice and fairness for all time. You know, it was the end of history for them. And, you know, then the end justified the means. And so if you had to crush people and kill people and send people to the gulag to achieve your utopia, then, you know, that was the lesser of two evils in their minds. Right. Because and Marxism, Marxism is, is yeah. atheist, of course. And Marx was explicitly atheist, as was Lenin, Stalin, Mao Zedong. Yeah. So these, these, these people uh, didn't believe in transcendent truth anyway. So at the end of the day, who cares, yeah. I guess, from their point of view? Exactly. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because uh, Marxism was an explicitly atheist ideology and they, uh, they persecuted the church in Russia uh, under the Stalin regime, under the Lenin regime that was before it. Um, and so you will see already, they have a lot in common kind of with postmodern philosophy, right? Mm. So you have, uh, we were talking about like the historical Marxism. Let's go back to the critical theorists. So the critical theorists are Marxists. So that's the, the paradigm that they're using to analyze society. Right. And you'll see that it has a lot in common with postmodernism. They're concerned about power. They're concerned about ideology. Uh, they're concerned about, justice in their minds, which is not a theistic type of justice, right? So uh, there was this blending of critical theory and postmodernism in uh, academia, right? In American academia, and I assume in British academia. Oh, it was um, because big, you had, in, big in France. I mean, we, you, we haven't mentioned yeah. Foucault and others. A lot of these ideas actually began in France, not in the United States, yeah. Uh, yeah. began in the 1980s. Uh, Foucault and others and were exported to the United States, Britain, well, exported everywhere in the West, and then took on a different momentum uh, through the media and the corporations, as you say. Yes. So you have, you have uh, generations of academics who um, were doing their analysis on the basis of critical theory and on, the, and on the basis of postmodernism. So there's sort of a synthesis of these two strands of thought. Uh, and then those produce the modern critical theories that we have now, which I call the identitarians. So it's critical race theory. It is critical gender theory, critical feminism, uh, queer theory, which is also a critical theory. Uh, in library science, which is where I work, there's critical information literacy. Really? Oh. Uh, which which is really problematic. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's really problematic because, again, like, uh, you have to believe that there, you, you have to hear information from both sides and you, you kind of sort of have to assume there's an objective truth in order to have information that is you to begin with. Uh, but they're using critical theory to uh, analyze information literacy concepts, which I, I think turns it on, on its head, but that's a different, that's a different topic altogether. Uh, but 
so you have all of these critical theories and then they're, they can be put under this umbrella of critical social justice, right? Critical social justice. And then when one or more critical theories are used in the same analysis, that is called intersectionality, okay? So intersectionality, I know, is a term that people use, uh, even the activists use it, right? And, and uh, that is when, uh, you know, someone's using critical race theory and critical gender theory, and then they're doing an, a, a synthesis of analysis using those two theories, right? So they intersect, right? So hence intersect, intersectionality. So these are the academic terms that we can use to define them in academia. Uh, but these theories have uh, escaped the lab, so to speak. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, yeah, right. Um, you know, critical race theory was very obscure in the '70s, and you know, it was just a few handful of academics, um, and it wasn't taken very seriously for a long time. And then, um, just in the last five years, the activists have mainstreamed those concepts of, uh, of critical race theory, right? And it's it's no longer just like a method of legal analysis that was done at Harvard uh, among a few, you know, it's now like a, a blueprint for activism, right? And, and that's with regard to race. And then they do it with regard to gender and sexuality and feminism and, and so on, right? So that's the academic origin of it. Um, and so I, you know, and uh, because I mean, because this is an obscure like academic theory and nobody really knows what I critical theory is or you know nobody even wants to read up on that stuff it's really boring uh they don't have the time i don't i don't blame them for that you know um so let's call it something that is easily understood on its face and i think that is identitarianism so it's the critical theory the marxist binary as applied to identity so uh instead of the proletariat and the bourgeoisie you have the races separated and in a zero-sum game against each other and then one has to basically defeat the other right um and uh same thing with uh feminism uh not necessarily the earlier iterations of feminism but like sort of the radical feminisms that are out there you know men men are oppressing women and therefore women have to organize and really have to uh you know, be antagonistic to men and, um, you know, and sets the genders together. That's, that's causing a lot of problems because men and women in, in Islam, men and women are the allies of one another. Allah says that in the Quran, right? And we... It's, it's very divisive. It, it uh, encourages yeah. people to identify in quite divisive ways the particular identities, gender, race, and sexuality, and so on. So instead of stressing the commonalities of our human origins and our destiny uh, orientated towards God, it, 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 we're fractured as a society into ever-increasing identity politics, identitarianism. And, and you're saying, obviously, this is an unhealthy thing and, and sets people against each other. Uh, in ever-increasing identities. It's not like there's just uh, the six identity issues. It seems it's like the LGBT, uh, uh, the, the additional letters of the alphabet added fairly regularly, it seems. Yeah, because there's, again, there's no limits to the where the logic can take them, right? So, um, uh, you know, we have limits within our religion that the, where the logic stops. I just, I simply can't move beyond a law's limit on a particular issue. 
right? Uh, for moral reasons, right? Religious reasons. And uh, they, they don't have, uh, they view all barriers as, uh, as oppressive, right? If it, if it gets in the way of how they want to live their lives or, what, or, or whatever desire that they have, if, if there's something in the way, even if it's an idea, they have to break it down and they have to deconstruct it and they have to uh, delegitimize the people who uh, promote it. Um, you know, and there's no end to that. And so you see that um, the, uh, the teenagers that are growing up today are growing up with very extreme ideas. Um, such as? It's shopping, such okay. as? Yes. Okay, can, uh, you, views, can you give concrete examples of what's, what's happening, do you think? Yeah, like uh, their views on race, their views on uh, sexuality, uh, their views on religion. Um, I don't want to get into like specifics. I think people understand okay. what's out there. Okay. Um, uh, uh, you know, these, these kids are making TikTok videos, right? And sometimes these go around on Twitter and you can, you can see that, that you know, they, they have these very extreme ideas, you know, um, they're not, they, they, their identities aren't stable. They don't know who they are. Um, they don't, they don't have any values that are grounded because they're told that you can just make your own values mm-hmm. and, you know, you can just make your own tradition and you don't have to follow anybody. You can just follow, you know, whatever you want. You don't have to listen to your parents. Yeah. You don't have to listen to your tradition or your religions or anything. And then that's not healthy for kids because kids, children and teenagers are children. They need guidance from their parents and their elders. Right. And they need to be told how to grow up and mature in healthy ways. And, and uh, the political activists out there, because they're, they're busy breaking barriers. They're not, then they're not giving children guidance and these children are lost. Right. It reminds me of um, this, this kind of blank slateism, as it's also called. Uh, there's a very eminent psychologist, Stephen Pinker. I think he's a professor at Harvard uh, who's very much alive and producing. He's got a book on the blank slate philosophy, which I've got and read. Um, the, the idea that we are social constructs, say gender, sexuality, whatever, is actually wholly false. Uh, the, the science is very clear. I mean, this is not really controversial in science, in, in psychology. Mm-hmm peer-reviewed psychological studies, men and women are different, actually. And this is objective, again, terrible word, objective. In other words, but it's empirically verifiable in the way you describe mm-hmm. defined science earlier. So the idea of what we are just blank slates born into this world and we can craft and make our own identities is actually empirically, scientifically false. And that's not an opinion. That's an objective scientific fact. And there's masses of empirical evidence, which Stephen Pinker discusses in his book. But he he looked at the origins of this ideology in the Enlightenment. I mean, it's not like this goes back to critical theory or something in the 1930s to Germany. This goes back before then to uh, ideas of human nature propagated in the Enlightenment. This is the 18th century. So we're going further and further back. So what we're seeing here, the... uh, the, the antecedent ideologies that have uh, provided the context for these new spin-offs to develop as the police car goes past. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is that th- this is a, a kind of a Western tradition uh, still doing its thing. It's an unstable tradition that is constantly evolving in different mutations and evolving and, and taking on new forms and maybe new languages. But there is a kind of um, subterranean metaphysics and epistemology that kind of looks rather familiar and we can trace it back many centuries um and contrasting with that of course is the islamic uh tradition 
which stands in a very different way to, for, for fundamental truth, existence of God, uh, and an objective moral order created by God himself. And I can't think of any two more antithetical worldviews than, than this kind of Western tradition and the Islamic one, because the Christians, unfortunately, certainly in the West, have largely gone over to this modernist view or postmodernist view, as have other groups. So Muslims tend to be the only group standing globally, I think, who retain the integrity of their faith in the face of these challenges. Uh, yes, everything you said was correct. And um, what, what concerns me is the way that Christianity has been infiltrated by these ideas and, and, and really watered down yeah. to the point that uh, it is very submissive to um, to, like to the political ideology. I mean, they, and they're not standing they're just going along with it, you know, and, and uh, I, I, I'm a, I don't want to them to make inroads into our tradition to do the same to us because they, they have their eyes on us and as they have done with the Christians. Yes. And it, 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 it frightens me that, that Christianity is, is being uh, deconstructed so quickly and efficiently in the West because it, as a Muslim, and a Christian who believes in God, uh, we have that part in common and we believe in Jesus and we believe that there's human nature and we have a lot in common, in fact, way more than we do with these uh, identitarians and atheists and postmodernists that we're talking about. Right? And as regards to human nature, we do have this concept that's mentioned in the Quran and in the Sunnah of the fitrah, right? You have the, the, in, in, the, the innate human nature with which God created people. So we're already created with a, blue, with a blueprint, right? We already have a set of genes and we already have a set of uh, the ways our brain are gonna develop that blank slate ideology. As you said, it's, it's old and it's false and it's anti-scientific, right? And, and Steven Pinker, and he's an atheist, right? And he knows yeah. it's not scientific. No, right. he's a formidable opponent. And the, the evidence he marshaled yeah. from his own expertise as a Harvard psychologist is irrefutable. I mean, this is multidisciplinary, mm -hmm. fundamental science that has been verified over and over and over again. It's not really disputed in that area, but outside of it, you'd think it was some kind of, you know, anyway, as you say, he's an atheist. He has no theological agenda. Yeah, but he believes there's a natural reality, right? So he's he's not the same as as these people, but... Uh, because they're pushing this blank slate ideology onto the children, onto the kids and the teenagers. You, you, you see a lot of bizarre behavior among teenagers. And, um, you know, it's very concerning that the, 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 this, this will have a generational effect and we won't see it until 20, 10, 10 or 20 years later, mm. uh, maybe faster than that. But these are third, fourth order consequences to the ideas that are being applied. And so, People, uh, people on the left and, 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 and of that type of persuasion, they like to say, well, how does it harm me that I'm doing this or I decide to live like this or anything like that or that I'm teaching children this? Well, it might not harm them in the sense as if you punch them in the face. It's not harming them that way, uh, but it may harm them later in their life that they didn't get a, a proper upbringing and it may harm the society later on that an entire generation didn't get a proper upbringing. Yeah. upbringing. So, um, and uh, I forget the, the anthropologist, uh, he was Harvard, but it was back in the 1920s, but he wrote about generational uh, effects of the, the change of sexual norms, right? When, when a society changes its sexual norms, 
Um, it, it takes two or three generations for you to see the full effect of, of, of that on the family and so on and everything. And so, um, you know, the, the decisions that were made in America with regard to uh, abortion and the sexual revolution and everything like that, we're seeing those come to fruition now, 60 years later. Right. And at the time, they were probably like, I, I can just I should be able to have sex with, with whoever I want. I'm not hurting anybody. These are two adults. We can live our life the way that they want. But because they promoted these ideas and generations of people grew up with them in secession, now we're dealing with uh, many pathologies in society, uh, maybe mental illnesses in society of people who never grew up with a proper understanding of the role of sex, uh, sexual intercourse and intimacy and, and, the, and the proper relationship between a man and a woman and marriage and all of these things that were fundamental to civilization and that people took for granted as a given. Uh, until they were challenged, right? And then ultimately uh, delegitimized in the minds yeah. of a lot of people. I, I think there's a slight danger here, in my, in my view, if I, if I may, in being overly pessimistic. There has been substantial pushback against this socially. We're mm -hmm. seeing, for example, Roe versus Wade, this uh, extraordinary mm -hmm. um, Supreme Court ruling was overturned recently by another Supreme Court. And, um, you know, there, there are there is movement on social media, you know, people like Gordon, Jordan Peterson uh, and, and others, mm -hmm. Uh, are powerful voices for uh, a more what I would call more normal and natural understanding of gender, for example, or uh, and and I, I think I mean I could be wrong, but I think we are beginning to see a substantive political and social pushback, not just on social media but politically as well. It, it, that's much clearer in the United States than it is, say, I think in Britain. But uh, you know, things that start in America end up tend to end up going elsewhere. And also, we, we mustn't forget that many parts of the world are profoundly. Uh, uh, disliking of this movement, Eastern Europe, Russia, China, and other parts of Africa and the Middle East, although they're coming under uh, pressure, uh, they absolutely don't like this stuff. You know, it's not like everyone's, you know, you mentioned Christians in the West being sort of submissive to this. A lot of places in the world are not. I mean, China, for example, is, you know, an emerging superpower. You know, it couldn't be less sympathetic to this, I understand. You know, they're not interested in these bizarre Western liberal notions which undermine the family and social cohesion and blah, 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 blah. And this is officially a communist society of all things. Mm. So I, I'm yeah. hoping that, that there's a multipolar kind of reality emerging and uh, that there may be pushback uh, uh, even within the West, America. Uh, so maybe it's not quite as pessimistic as one might initially think. Yeah, I think so. And I, I, I understand why I probably came off that way. Um, I mean, it, 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 this content is disturbing. This subject is disturbing. But you're right, there has been pushback. And I was happy that the issue of abortion was returned to the states, because I think it should have been a state issue to begin with. And that if you want to, uh, if you want a very um, permissive abortion law, then you need to persuade people to be able to vote on that, at least in the American context. Yeah. Um, that's how the American politics is supposed to work. And the reaction to that was hysterical. Yeah. Uh, but um, and that was actually what led me to write the article to begin with, because um, I shared my opinion and, and people uh, were very upset about it. And, and then, really? you know, it's, it's yeah. And then so and then I so I, I, I made some tweets and then uh, my colleague, uh, my friend at Muslim Matters is one of me, well, you should make these tweets into an article that's more refined and well yes. polished and everything. And so uh, it was actually the abortion issue that led to the article that we're talking about. Interesting. Um, 
but yeah, the, the, there is pushback. I, I, I'm hopeful. And, and, and these, you know, these, uh, you know, as Allah says in the Quran, that falsehood is, is bound to vanish, you know, falsehood is just blown away. Right. And yeah. so if their ideology is based on falsehood, it will eventually be, it will be, it will eventually go away. And because it has nothing to stand on, yeah. it can't be permanent. Right. Exactly. So um, there's no reason, I think, like for pessimism, especially not in the uh, in the fullest religious sense, because we know Allah is the guardian over all of us and that, you know, the, the, the world is a trial and, and he will support the believers and, and we shouldn't really be exactly. uh, fearful in that sense. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's op- reason for optimism. You're absolutely right. I'm glad you said that. OK, thank you. Sorry to interrupt. Carry on. Oh, yeah. So um, I have some comments about the Mu'tazila. Yeah, I was wondering, uh, my question to you was going to be, uh, are there any parallels worth noting uh, in the Islamic tradition? And I know, having read your article, of course, that you you make a, a parallel. Uh, exact or inexact might be the question, but nevertheless, there are parallels in your view. Yeah, um, it's an inexact. Um, it's not perfect because there really is no precedent. Uh, in early Islamic history for the ideas that we're seeing now, um, not like from within the tradition. I mentioned, I mentioned the Mu'tazila for a reason, but I want to say off the front, up front, uh, that the Mu'tazila were much better than these postmodern philosophers and these Marxists and atheists and critical theorists. And because the Mu'tazila, even though they had a methodology, which I believe that diverted from the way that the righteous predecessors understood the Quran and Sunnah, they still believed in absolute truth. And they still believed the Quran and Sunnah were divine revelation. Uh, and I, I believe that their methodology of deriving theological beliefs was flawed. Um, but they were Muslims, right? They were Muslims that were misguided in some ways. And then even some Muslim scholars like Azimah Shari, uh, who was a tafsir scholar, who was a, 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 um, of the Mu'tazila persuasion or uh, sympathetic to it, uh, his works are read by Sunnis and are valuable. And um, there are other commentaries that I've read that were by Mu'tazila scholars that had insightful things to say. And so they, they're Muslims. I'm not saying they're not Muslims, and I'm not equating them with these people at all. But so the Mu'tazila, why I brought them up is because there was a radical group of Mu'tazila who um, they basically found favor with the ruling class, with the caliph, and then they used this power to promote their doctrine uh, by force upon the population uh, and, and, and against Sunni Muslim scholars like Ahmed ibn Hanbal, Imam Ahmed, um, and they beat him almost to death, right? And what was the doctrine that they were promoting? It was the doctrine that the Quran was created. Okay. But why did they, why was that even an issue? Uh, As I understood it, they, they said that the Quran was created because uh, if the Quran was, was uncreated and Allah was uncreated, that would be co-eternals and there can be no two co-eternals in the Greek philosophical scheme. Right. So they were influenced by the Greek philosophical ideas. Right. And it caused them to invent this saying that the Quran was created, that nobody before had them, nobody before them had said, and then began to persecute people, Muslims, scholars, imams, for not accepting this idea and this doctrine that they made up, and, then, and there was no precedent before. 
So that, right. that, that was influenced by uh, ultimately by Greek philosophy, Greek philosophical concepts, and that's what kind mm -hmm. of impinged on their their thinking, uh, resulting in a a novel uh, position, an unprecedented position on the creativeness of the Quran. Yeah. So I the reason I brought them up is because I thought that was a good example of how a foreign philosophy can be. Uh, it can influence Muslims to commit atrocities against their Muslim brothers and sisters for one. And, um, and then to create new theological beliefs that have no precedent in Islam at all. Right. So, and I believe that that paradigm of that particular incident, I'm not saying this about all the Mu'tazila because you can't, I, I don't, I don't think we can generalize about all of them. Uh, but on that particular incident, I, I could see that Muslims who are being influenced by the, the postmodern identitarian movement um, are trying to uh, create the theological beliefs. I've seen some of them reject Hadith uh, because it, it conflicted with racial or gender issues, the, the issues that they learned about from non-Muslim academics in this field, right? I've seen, um, and, and, and there's other examples of this in academia. Like, I don't want to get um, we, we, we could pull those out. I don't know, have those off the top of my head. Um, but M Muslims, I think, are aware that this trend is out there. And, um, and what really concerns me is that the, the, the Muslims getting too close to a political party, getting too, too close to a political movement, um, and that them being influenced by its negative aspects, and in particular, the young people, being influenced by the negative aspects. And so uh, the, the thing is, if the Muslims and the Muslim young people, right, not the adults necessarily, but if the Muslim young people, if they don't have a relationship to the imams and the scholars and the, the, the pious worshipers and the uncle in your masjid that is a great guy who, who would do anything for you and, and have that relationship with uh, the Muslim community in the scholarly tradition in, in Islam, uh, the Sunni Muslim community, then they will look to political leaders, right? And they will look to some of the Muslim politicians in America, none of whom I am satisfied with and whom I have criticized openly before. Um, and they'll, they'll, look, they'll look to Joe Biden or they'll look to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or they'll look to any, any of these politicians who are flashy on social media They'll look to them for guidance if they're not getting it from the scholars and the imams of our community. And if they're looking to those people, they're going to be influenced by their ideas and they might try to, you know, and they're, and they're, they're still Muslims. I'm not saying they're not Muslims, but they might try to synthesize those ideas within our tradition. And I, in fact, had conversations with my colleagues uh, about this exact issue, and I told them that I believed that these ideas were dangerous, and I didn't want these ideas to be uh, mainstreamed in our community. And we had, uh, I wouldn't say heated dis discussions, but we had very intense discussions about this issue. And um, you know, ultimately, you know, it, it's come to where it is now, right? And I don't think it's something that we can ignore. And, and I, I don't want to see any Muslim of a scholarly, uh, who, who has a scholarly office or who is an imam or is in any leadership capacity flirting with any of these ideas at all. Because I just think that's very dangerous, especially 
people who are like imams and have a religious like um, veneer or religious perception, you know, this is a religious person and then they're tweeting politicians and they're tweeting activists and those activists are going out and saying very racially diverse and and divisive stuff, right? And they're saying uh, stuff that's not true. They're saying stuff that is, you know, not true about gender, not true about human nature. But, but they say, hey, this, the sheikh retweeted this guy. This guy's good. I can listen to him. I can listen to this MSNBC guy or this CNN guy or this Washington Post guy because the sheikh retweeted him. So it's good that I can I can listen to him. Right. Because I trust the sheikh. The sheikh retweeted this guy. So therefore, I'm going to listen to this guy and take his word for it. And these children don't know any better. Right. And they don't know that the, 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 the journalists have become propagandists and journalists have become activists. And a lot of these journalists are uh, the, the, um, are applying critical theories, right? They're not, nest- they're not academics, and so they're not developing critical theories, but they're applying critical theories in the way that they report the news, right? And that brings me to another point I wanted to mention, and which I linked to in the article, because I linked to in the ar- a big part of this is that a lot of the information that you get on, uh, from news sites, and whether it's left or right, uh, a lot of it cannot be verified, and a lot of it cannot be trusted. And I linked to an article that was in the Harvard Business Review, and the title of the article is Why the News is Not True, mm-hmm. right? And this is written in the 90s. And basic, the basic um, point that the author was making, I think, still applies today, right? Because he talked about the rise of Pulitzer <laughs> journalism. Yep. So... Uh, you know, the news way back before Pulitzer was basically a bulletin board of factual events. This happened, you know, this, 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 it was really boring and nobody would go seek it out. It was just like, it was really like reading the bulletin board at your, at your school or something. It was just like, why would anybody, it's not entertaining at all. Right. But Pulitzer came and he revolutionized the news because then he started to tell the news with characters and with villains and with a narrative and his story and made it entertaining. You know, he was the first one that did that. And so he revolutionized the news that way. And then the news could become a business because the news was entertaining and it was interesting. Right. And then that developed into what we have now. Now we have 24 seven entertainment news, infotainment, which is news that is and meant to be entertaining or at least interesting or stimulating, you know, you have, you have it at all times of the day. You can have a perfectly curated Twitter feed of all your favorite journalists who are always repeating the same thing. And you'll never hear anything from the other side. Yeah. If you don't seek out those views, you'll never hear any dissident information and therefore you, you will be misled. Right. One of the principles of information literacy is that you have to get information from dissident sources uh, and from mul- multiple sources, and then you have to look at them all together and you have to synthesize what you think is true from all this information or is what most likely to be true, right? That's the principle of information literacy. And uh, people today, they have these curated Twitter feeds, they have the journalists that they listen to, they don't seek out other viewpoints, and therefore they're only getting the narratives that the journalists are writing for them. And these are narratives that were written by critical theorists, Right. That feminist narratives and, 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 and racial narratives, right? And, and sexual identity narratives and things like that. And so the news, the facts of the news are fit into these narratives, right? right? And there are villains. Donald Trump is a villain in the narrative. 
and, and maybe rightfully so, or you know, rightfully so on several things, I would say, um, at the very least. Uh, but 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 he's a he's a villain, right? He's a character in the news, um, and uh, you know they're telling you stories, right? And they're telling you what's happening through these entertaining stories, and the news is in, as a fact based fact finding <clears throat> operation isn't supposed really supposed to be that way because they're telling you how to interpret the facts. They're mm-hmm. not just giving you facts, right? They're they're giving you some facts, and sometimes there are. are omitting key facts, and sometimes they are even obscuring facts or, or even misquoting people directly and, and doing other things like that. But it's all in the service of the narrative because the narrative is, 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 the, is the consistent element of the news, right? And the narrative, is, it goes a certain way and it only changes when the powers that be wanted to change. Well, one of the and, examples for me, you talk about um, being uh, literal, being into having a literal understanding of news and looking at dissident sources, how difficult that is. For example, the the war in Ukraine at the moment. I'm mean, not going to go into this, but it's just an example with, with the Putin's invasion of Ukraine. It is that uh, alternative news sources like Russia Today, which is which is Russia's English language news service, have actually been banned in the West. And um, I mean, you can if you really look hard just about find a way of watching Russia today, um, the English language news source. But this offers a very alternative uh, narrative. Um, but apart from that, all the other perspectives are completely absent. And you have a single narrative, whether it be from NATO, from government, from corporations, from all new, new media, politicians, you name it. They all sing from exactly the same hymn sheet, which strikes me as very suspicious, um, particularly when you are banning alternative points of view. It's it's it, it, one, one suspects one might be hearing propaganda if it has to be so one-sided. Um, and that's just one, one example of, of how happily everyone just uh, goes along with the official narrative across the board. Um, and to even think there might be another narrative is almost, well, it is treason. It's seen as treason and actually uh, socially taboo. And I'm thinking, excuse me, where did all that come from? Well, why can't we look at various views on this? Yeah, uh, I mean... Um... I, I mentioned that because this is a this is why people are so indoctrinated into into the critical theories. The propaganda is a, a right and a, is a right and a left problem. I'm not saying yeah. that only the left wing is doing oh. propaganda, and and the the right and the left will unite for international propaganda re- reasons. The Iraq war lie was a bipartisan lie. True. Republicans and Democrats yeah. did that. Well, weapons, but weapons of mass destruction. Saddam Hussein was an imminent threat to the West. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the Democrats went along with that and Joe Biden went along with that. Right. Mm-hmm. So they, they will unite around certain things. Right. But f- from a cultural perspective, uh, the, the a lot of the legacy mainstream media outlets, the journalists aren't actually reporters. You know, that that uh, image that you have of the uh, of the what was it called? Watergate. The Watergate reporters are meeting oh, yeah, in the basement. Yeah. All, you know, all, with, all the president's men. That amazing film with, uh, yeah, yeah, right. And the hard-nosed reporter is going to get to the truth and put it out there. You know, is that kind of investigative reporting happening anymore? Um, and any, you, you know, I mean, a lot of these journalists are are just cheerleaders for their team, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and 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 if they were truthful, they would be they would be tr- criticizing the people on their side. Right. Or they would frame things in a way that would make people come to their own conclusions. But they want to tell you what to think. They want to tell you what the narrative is. This is the story. Right. This is how you should interpret the facts. Right. They will hide certain facts from you. It's very suspicious. 
right? And, um, you know, that, that's a big part of this, right? Uh, that, that all of the dishonesty, it's not just in the ideology itself, but it's in the actual news that people consume, right? I've seen Muslim scholars share news that is, has been falsified, right? That was, I don't want to say fake news, but it was, there were false aspects of the reporting, right? And um, what the news organizations will also do, and this is a tactic, tactic of theirs, is that they will publish a news article and it will contain false information uh, that might be beneficial to their side. And then they will issue the correction later quietly, yes. you know, and it'll be correct, corrected the next day or whatever. We mm-hmm. missed, we didn't quote this person correctly or this, you know, this fact wasn't true or anything like that. And the original article went out to the activists and 20,000 people retweeted it and millions of people saw it and got the false idea in their mind. And then nobody saw their correction, right? This is also happens to be a military tactic. So if the militaries make a mistake and they bomb civilians, they'll say at first that they, they bomb terrorists. And then a few weeks later, they say, oh yeah, we made a mistake, right? The, the US government did that recently in Afghanistan uh, when they were leaving Afghanistan, uh, there was a, uh, they, they, uh, they bombed people that they claimed were ISIS terrorists. And they said, we killed these terrorists. And, you know, we got back at them for, for, you know, they killed some of our soldiers. And then, uh, a few weeks later, they admitted that, no, that was a family of six or something that, you know, that, that, that we murdered and there was no terrorists there at all. Right. Uh, but in the moment that, served its function, right? Because they had to show that yeah. that they were getting out of Af- Afghanistan and they were strong against terrorism and everything like that. So they did this bombing and that was a successful thing. And so that's what they wanted people to see in that moment. And it served that moment. And then later on, they uh, admitted that it was it, it was a mistake and innocent people were killed. Uh, but, you know, how many people went and saw that part of it? You know, when, that, when, it, when it was out of the headline news, how many people saw the correction? Right. So this is just something about the news I've had on my chest for a very long time. I I am an information professional. This is actually what I do for a living. So it is very concerning to me uh, that people are so uh, illiterate when it comes to information. um, And and in particular, uh, the way journalists are not devoted to the truth and they're not even devoted to to uncovering wrongdoing when it's done by the people in their own party, right? They have power concerns, they have political concerns, ideological concerns, that they have means that just, uh, they have ends that justify the means they employ that might be dishonest, right? And, um, and a lot of this is, is, is from the influence of these philosophies that we have been talking about. So that's my, um, that's my bit about propaganda part and why I, li- I listened, uh, I linked to that uh, Harvard Business Review article. Again, the title is Why News is Not the Truth. And I would recommend anybody who's interested in this topic to go back and read that because the paradigm that he describes or the author describes in that article is, is the same paradigm that is being, uh, that we can see today. And it's even, it's arguably even worse than it was back in the 90s when these things yeah. were being so Just to clarify, this is uh, your article, The False Promise of Identitarianism, 
on the Muslim Matters yeah. website, which I've linked to in the description below. And within that article, there are links to several articles, actually. But one, one of them is to this Harvard Business Review uh, article that you mentioned. So that, that's where you'll find it. Yes, thank you. So I, I, we've covered a lot of the points that um, I wanted to mention. I do also want to mention that because um, the identitarianism is inherently tribalist, they employ double standards, right? So the, the group that they don't like has, has one standard and then the group that they're trying, that they claim they're trying to protect has a different standard. And this, this double standard, people can see this hypocrisy and it aggravates people. And it's again, another reason why people will never be able to unite uh, because you know, why, why should I submit to your ideas or why should I even be in discussion with you when you're not even willing to treat me the same as, as somebody else, right? Just because of the color of my skin or my gender or my sexuality or whatever, yeah. right? And so you see people's opinions are dismissed, right? Because, okay, you're part of this group therefore your opinion doesn't matter. And you're part of this group. Therefore your opinion is more valuable than that person's opinion. And you can't learn from this person because they're part of that group, but this person, you need to be special. They, 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 they you need to pay special attention to them because they're from a special group. Um, and that, that type of tribalism is just, it, 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 it it's fracture. It fractures society and, and it is doing that. Yeah. Um, but again, I, like I said, there are, are indications that, there are there is pushback to that, but that that's yeah. a that's a problem. You know the the double standards. It's it's hypocrisy, and hypocrisy is a major is a major sin in Islam. Not not necessarily the hypocrisy like of your pretending to be a Muslim so you can attack Muslims, but the hypocrisy of saying something and then not really believing it in your heart. Right? You you claim you want to be fair to other people, but then in practice you're treating people different based on the color of their skin or their gender. Um, you know, people, people notice that and they, they don't take kindly to that. Right. And that's not something that can, can, uh, that doesn't contribute to a functioning society. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's, so that, that's a, that's a major part of this. Right. So, um, and I would also say that, um, I'm concerned about the worldliness of this because the activism that, that we're talking about is really based on the world. Okay. We're not talking about Dr. Martin Luther King's activism, which was based off of Christian love of your neighbor. Right. And then there was a, he had a theological basis to his activism and his marches. Right. And, uh, uh, he produced the, the progress so, right, that the, the 1964 civil rights act and improved race relations, uh, and it came from that framework. It was a Christian framework that he came from. Um, uh, but, but, you know, he had this uh, theological, otherworldly, you know, uh, type of view, right? He just didn't look at things in the world. He, thought, he looked at things spiritually, right, yeah. in, in terms of God, right? But yeah. this activism, this new activism, it's very worldly. It's about power. They're obsessed with power dynamics and power relationships, and uh, essentializing people's identities. So, you know, if you're from this group, then you, you, your identity is a function of that group and you can't be anything more than what that group will allow you to be. You're basically not an individual, right? And if you step out of line, like, so for example, if you are an African-American and you're not going along with all these things, then they will say 
that you're just trying to be white, right? You're, you're trying to be white adjacent is the term they used, and they will call this multiracial whiteness, right? So they had to explain the phenomenon of why are Blacks and Latinos going to the Republican Party? And yeah. the line there, which was in the Washington Post, is that this is multiracial whiteness, right? That's what they're talking about, which is, is uh, absurd, right? Uh, to, 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 th- those are two opposite things, right? Um, it, it doesn't make sense to normal people. And, and it will make sense when, you're, when your mind is wrapped up in all of these like theories and everything. They, it makes sense to them, but for everybody else, what are you talking about multiracial whiteness, right? And so let's say, you know, black people who are conservative or they're not, they're not on board with the agenda, that they're not really black, they're not politically black, you know, uh, people, people, journalists have said that left wing journalists have said that. Um, and, and, and women, you know, women who are against abortion or anti women, you know, uh, women who are against some aspect of the feminist agenda are, are, are uh, oppressing women, you know, they're, they're supporting the patriarchy, you know, they essentialize the identities. And then, uh, you know, if you step outside of that, then you, they, they erase your identity, basically. And you're, you're, you're like, uh, you're, you're just like a, you become part of the bad guy, right? Uh, you just become part of the, that, the oppressor group. And you're not an individual with your own ideas. You're not an individual who can think for yourself and assess these ideas and decide whether you want to go along with their agenda. You know, your, your skin color should determine your political views. Right. And if if you are of a certain skin color or you have a certain gender or you are of a certain sexuality, you should have these political views that they have decided for you, that these elites have decided that these are the political views that you should have on the basis of your identity. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have these views, you are not actually black and you're not actually woman and you're actually, you know, you're a racist and you're in your and you're homophobic or you're whatever, whatever the th- labels they throw at you. So this is called the essentialization of the identity, right? They, they believe that the true identity can only be a certain way and that if you are in a certain identity, you can, you can only have a certain political view and you're not an individual, right? You're, you're not really an individual with your own viewpoints, right? And, and your own reasons for going along with them or not or disagreeing or not. You, you should have the certain views that they, 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 they are telling you, this is what black people should, this is what black people should think. This is what women should think. This is what people of different sexuality should think. Right. And they're giving you the views. And if you step out of those line, out of those views, they'll kick you out of the identity and erase your identity and, you know, and no longer care about your issues. Right. And, and so it, it, it's not really about helping these groups of identities, it's these groups of identities are politicized, right? And exploited mm. for the purpose of, for their purposes of seeking power mm. of, of, of their ideological goals, right? Because it's not just, it's not a principled belief that they want to help all black people, you know? I mean, we know black people have suffered racism and we know that there's big problems even today. And we, we, we should be sympathetic to that and we should be looking for ways to fix that, right? But these people, these elite people who essentialize the identities of black people, they wanna tell black people what to believe and then 
uh, and basically exploit that, right? And, and they're not actually caring about, you know, if you're a black person and you don't go along with their agenda, they don't care about you, right? They've said that, right? And they've, they've, they've been terrible to black conservatives, right? High profile black conservatives, right? And, and, and have been racist towards them, right? But they don't consider racism because they consider the, these are white adjacent um, uh, black people, right? In their, in their theory, right? So yeah, that was really heavy, okay? So we'll stop with that, uh, or I'll, I'll stop there on that, on that issue. Um, no, I think it's, uh, uh, as I said, I do encourage people to uh, read uh, the article, The False, uh, the False Promise of Identitarianism uh, on the Muslim Matters uh, website. Um, uh, for further information, there are, there are further links as well, not just within the article to uh, certain papers, uh, newspaper articles, but at the bottom there is for further articles uh, and for further reading as well. So um, one can really go a lot further uh, with this subject. Um, and it's good to talk about it. This is an important subject and I'm, I'm very pleased uh, Muslim scholars and others are talking about this and uh, trying to call back some of the Muslim leaders that are perceived to have perhaps um, Mutazilite style um, adopted philosophies and worldviews which are not intrinsic to the Quran and the Sunnah uh, and are now, uh, and some of these leaders, it seems, uh, are now um, speaking much more clearly from uh, uh, the Islamic tradition rather than from external um, ideologies which may not be compatible with Islam at all. So um, no, I think this is a healthy discussion. And, and like you, I, I am ultimately optimistic because uh, this is so alien to our human nature, our fitra. It can't, it can't survive, but it may do a lot of damage in the meantime, however. Um, and that's the concern, I think. Yeah. So I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk about it. And I, I ask a lot to forgive me for anything that I said that was incorrect. And um, I tried to phrase things in, the, in, in a sensitive and in compassionate way while still being truthful as much as I could. So, um, you know, uh, it, it, I just want to make that make that point. And I actually say that at the end of everything that, 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 that I, whenever I give any one of these talks, you know, I ask a lot to forgive me for my mistakes and I'm a human being and I may have said things that are wrong. I probably did said some things that were wrong or not phrased in a wise way. So uh, for your listeners, ask them to forgive me for that and ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to forgive me. Um, but yeah, is there any, any last thoughts or no, no, I, I think, uh, no, I'm just, uh, there's so much to ponder on. So I, uh, I say yeah. I encourage people to look at the article and ponder uh, and check the links uh, as well. So thank you uh, very much indeed, Abu uh, Amina uh, Ilyas, for your time, your expertise, your passion uh, uh, and, and desire to discuss these issues publicly. And I, I know that can be a, co a, a, a costly exercise uh, in today's uh, world. Um, so, and your courage as well then for that. Thank you. Thank you. Right, Thank you. Bye-bye. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.